Hello, and you're listening to The Kilt and the Cloth by Reverend Joshua Bell. Here now is our Elder Series Part 2. Hope you enjoy. God bless. So I think that there's been many different writers in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ that have written extensively about elders and deacons in the denomination. For me, the writer who leads the conversation in aspects of liturgy and roles of elders is Dr. Colbert Cartwright. He is the co-author of The Chalice Worship, which was written as a gift for the denomination in the form of Candles of Grace. Now, this is the book that is the gold standard for a strong collection of information about the history of disciples' worship. It's not just focused on Alexander Kimball, which most historical narratives about the Christian Church Disciples of Christ seem to be written in. In this book, he takes special time to mention all the founders— Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Bart W. Stone, and finally Walter Scott. If you were reading this book, Candles of Grace, on page 28 and 29, you you see definite models for what we would call liturgy, which liturgy is the the study and practice of a group of people in the aspect of worship. And in the early movement of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we see that on page 28, communion at the end of the service and the invitation is right after what some might call the homily or the sermon. Now, this is an early example of Alexander Campbell's worship order. Now, however, on page 29 of Candles of Grace, you can see the order of worship changing around 1920. And around 1920, we estimate that about two-thirds of disciples' congregations ordered their worship to have the sermon as the climax, or rather than the Lord's Supper. Early disciples' worship was highly participatory. Alexander Campbell once described a worship service he attended of a congregation of about 50 members where no one was deemed qualified to preach. They would choose a senior member to preside. The congregation sang, someone qualified to read well in public uh, reads a gospel lesson. They did not, however, stand at the reading of the gospel lesson because, remember, anything in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, could not look like or sound like anything like our European Christian brothers and sisters. So basically, everything that we want to know is found on page 91 in this book called Candles of Grace. It's extremely important to show that the elders were a part of various parts of the worship experience in the early congregations. Now, considering our elders are typically focused primarily on their roles in worship, it should give us a moment to pause and to ask, is what the elders do today because uh, we started hiring professional clergy. Dr. James Joyce, who was a close friend of my grandparents, and I feel as though I need to use something from his writings, was the fact that he talked about at a time in our denomination where the denomination in a sake of ecumenism, which is the goal of working with other faith traditions in order to bring out a common good. He would use universal language for elements of our worship experience. Like, for one example of this would be the word Eucharist. Now, I have a podcast specifically talking about the difference between what we call communion and Eucharist that you're more than welcome to check out. But James Joyce says, even if one rules out the entire sacrificial concept from the epistles and the synoptic gospels, there's still sufficient basis for the Lord's Supper as a memorial and a remembrance of his death. So no matter what Dr. James Joyce writes, he gives us a, a dialogue that our communion service is really a memorial remembrance of Jesus' death. 
He also goes on to say that central to the reference of this right to the past is the idea of thanksgiving, and which is where we get the word Eucharist. The issue then becomes that we appropriate a word from our European brothers and sisters. I feel as though this was one of the first times we try to justify our remembrance of the Lord's Supper, and I would say that there's proof of this, that maybe even Dr. Joyce's quoting of Boltmann's study of the Didache, the issue we face is, as a denomination was what it is that we are trying to accomplish at the table in our different roles. So what is the role of clergy, and what is the role of elder? One example of this might be the conversation as to what happens at the table. If you were to ask most Christian Church Disciples of Christ members, they would describe the elements of communion as the body and blood of Christ. And when pushed, most congregants most likely have different opinions as to what the elements at the communion table are, let alone the importance of who presides over the table. The Christian Church Disciples of Christ needs to embrace its heritage in regard to what takes place at this table of remembrance and not try to create or borrow definitions from other faith traditions. In a lot of ways, it causes confusion and misunderstanding. When I've heard clergy tell my Catholic friends, for example, yes, you can have communion, it means exactly the same thing. To me, this is just blatantly not true. This is not to say that there cannot be different opinions as to what takes place at the table. In some essence, that is what makes communion so powerful. It is truly a place where all believers can come and worship together and embrace this holy moment of communion, however they feel called. There are a few scholars who that I truly believe can shake up a faith movement. Two of those, like Michael Kinnaman and Jan Lynn, have definitely done this a time or two in our denomination. I remember a long time ago that they wrote this wonderful book called Disciples, Reclaiming Our Identity and Reforming Our Practice. And they, they challenge not just the historical approaches of our ancestors in the movement, but I would argue they challenge the very theology of what it means to be a leader in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. We in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ say that we believe that the true growth comes from a laity-led church. Alexander Campbell would have agreed with this statement, only taking exception with it by adding that the lady must be have a solid biblical understanding, he would say. There are a lot of issues with the ambiguity of this statement, and the authors of this book point them out by saying, for example, mission is not auxiliary to the church, it is the lifeblood. I love that language. I also like the part where they say on page 109, disciples always believed ministry is lay-centered. And again on page 115 when they say, The disciples' historic focus on lay ministry was not intended to create a competitive relationship with its clergy. They specifically point out using clergy as CEOs and laity to fill in the middle management roles without any guidance becomes what it really is, a parody. If the church is to truly change, we need to reassess the word covenant. The authors give specific examples of covenants that might be used in congregational life for numerous groups. For example, covenant provides disciples with a framework for holding freedom and community in appropriate tension, but the theory and practice of covenant have not permeated the life of the church. I unfortunately use this phrase rather sparingly. 
I feel as though covenant says, I will promise to behave if you do, if we're being totally honest. Yet the word has so much richer meaning. Reverend Dr. Jane Fissler Hoffman, who was a, a former conference minister of the UCC, uh, which is the United Church of Christ, for those of you that are listening, and a local pastor, she says, covenant is all about freedom. But freedom, in fact, to be in relationship. Covenant is first of all, always about God's freedom. So congregations have a number of obvious moments in which people enter into or reaffirm covenant with God in the community. Some of those might include baptism, uh, maybe their new membership, and the installation of a minister or congregational officers. This statement needs to be used in discussing the roles of elders in individual congregations. It makes me wonder, how many congregations have covenants that they sign with their elders? Do they create safe places for those elders? I always have viewed covenants as setting boundaries and expectations for those all involved. Whether it was a church camp or a youth group experience, while covenants are important, it would be vital to discuss the role of communion theologically with our elders and all of those involved with the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings. The Christian church does not view communion as a sacrifice as much as it is a place of breaking the loaf. It is the place where small and or yote congregations without clergy present every week worship. They still worship, if for no other reason, to have communion. This is what disciples do. We join together in worship that revolves around communion. Parker Palmer gives voice to the struggle that most congregations face when he says, leaders who can guide the church into and through transformational decision-making are people who lead from within. I feel as though these two authors contribute to a transformative conversation as to how we can be leaders from within, especially in regard to elders in the 21st century. If our faith has taught us anything, they say, he suggests it is that external reality does not impinge upon us as a prison or an ultimate constraint. It becomes, and spirituality is not about values or ethics, it's about what we project onto the external world. The church then becomes a place where we will project either a spirit of light or a spirit of shadow, and hopefully a spirit of hope or a spirit of of despair. One of my favorite professors of all time, the late Dr. Dennis Smith, had a beautiful conversation that he wrote in a book entitled Many Tables, Eucharist in the New Testament Lit Liturgy Today that he co-wrote with Dr. Hal Tossig. He talks about and transports us into a world where table has a whole new meaning. Dr. Dennis Smith and Dr. Hal Tossig take the study of meals to a whole new level. One example of this would be the discovery that the Christian meal practices were not significantly different from those in their own cultures. In our culture, we supposedly are open to anyone and everyone at the table, much like that of our ancestors in the Christian church. Meals in the church of antiquity were not merely some sort of fellowship dinner, however. They were a place and time of importance. And there was a flow and order to the meal. 
The rooms used for these meals were open places. People coming to these meals were invited to recline, facing each other in a triclinium or like a triangular-shaped table so they could fully participate in the conversation happening around the table. So what would it look like if our elders truly became stewards? This conversation almost always comes to the subjects of theology and the practices that go with it. In the Disciples of Christ, we may have what is referred to a high church service that is much like a Catholic Mass. And in some times, you might find a congregation that is literally down the street that really has a different kind of free-flowing service and might look much like our independent brothers and sisters. The interesting thing to me is the creative license that we are free to experiment with regarding liturgies. This creates much discussion, and specifically for those that may have come from another faith culture. There is almost an unwritten rule as far as what churches should and should not do in regard to certain aspects of liturgy. For example, the conversation of speaking in tongues comes to mind. Now, you will find it an interesting conversation when someone from a tradition that starts to speak in tongues in a sanctuary. The conversation that usually ensues is quite uh, fascinating. The hope that comes from a personal naivety is that all parties will go into a biblical conversation and discuss the differences in understanding of these fundamental denominational practices. Unfortunately, one of the weaknesses that I've experienced is that although these churches are both different and supposedly similar, they have no idea why they do the things that they do in regard to worship. At a Remind and Renew conference at Phillips Theological Seminary in 2013, a story was told about a Methodist minister who came into a church, and on his first Sunday, the entire congregation stood up and turned to face the back of the sanctuary, turned the reciting of the Apostles' Creed. You can imagine that the minister's reaction to this display, and after a while, and a couple of weeks, this congregation continuing to stand up at the time of the Apostles' Creed, turn around and face the back wall, continued. And the minister finally asked, you know, because we always get a little nervous at our churches, hey, uh, out of curiosity, why do you turn around and face the back wall during the Apostles' Creed? The member that he asked simply responded, well, We always have. Sometimes, even in our own services, we have rituals that we practice, and we really never know why we do them, or their theological context. If we have all of this freedom, because we don't practice doctrine or creeds, yet studying Scripture is essential to whom we are, wouldn't it make sense that we have a definite answer as to the why we do them? I mean, we're not bound by a quote-unquote book of worship or a missile that dictates that what we have to do or not allowed to do during worship. And for me, I think this begins a deeper dialogue as to the excellent conversations that we should have and continue should have with our elders and our diaconate. This has been my discussion on elders and deacons, part two.